Sometimes you, you'll always look for the reason why something's not right and why things are being... And that, that stifles decision-making. So don't, don't let those sort of negative things... You've just got to be very measured and, and look at things on balance and make an informed decision. If you try to look at all the negatives and you procrastinate over things, then that's just as bad as not making, you know, not making decisions, making a bad decision. So as you say, just make a, make a decision. Look, consider all information and make a, a clear decision. You are listening to the Property Developer Podcast, your home for tips, ideas, and inspiration to help take your developing to the next level. Now, here's your host, Justin Getty. Hello, and welcome to episode 57 of the show. Thanks for joining me. I hope you're well. I'm chugging along. I have a special International Women's Day episode coming up for you. So, a big hello to all you females out there. Keep chipping away at becoming a great developer. To mark the day, I'm speaking with two female developers who are making their way in the property development game. I think you will enjoy the conversation with them. Before we get to that, here's a quick update on what I've been up to. With my sales campaign, we are making good progress on the internal renders, with most of them almost complete. I'm also waiting on an estimate from the builder on the construction cost so that I can more confidently price my new stock. On my other project, where we have provided information for an RFI, We've been told by council that they consider our application has lapsed because we didn't seek a deadline extension before the correct date. We disagree with this view and are hoping council will be fair and reasonable in their consideration of it rather than being mean-spirited, but time will tell. So cross your fingers for me. This certainly is an issue I wasn't expecting to have to deal with. Otherwise, council have everything they need in response to the RFI letter. In other news, I've been receiving a lot of emails following the last episode about lending and funding, so obviously finance is a hot topic for developers. I was thinking of running a finance masterclass with Dan Holden and Steve Wiltshire to further help you understand the current landscape, opportunities for funding your projects, and how you can manage capital to continually grow your business. If I get sufficient interest, we'll run it online so you can access it from anywhere. I thought we would also cover assessment of deals by lenders, types of loans, cash flow tips, preparing your financials, calculating finance costs, assessing funding options and costs, and a whole lot more. I'm looking to do this soon, so if you are interested, please drop me an email before the end of March 2019 and let me know whether you are keen and what topics would be most valuable. My email is justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com. And if you are keen on breaking into the property development game and want to learn how, then remember we have the mentoring program that is available to teach you everything you need to know about becoming a successful developer. Congratulations to Charlie, who recently signed up and is getting started on making his dream a reality. Drop me an email if you want to know more about the mentoring program, justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com, and I will send you some further info. Now, just before we get to today's guests... I wanted to let you know about my guest in the next episode. He's an Aussie agent working in the US who sold a property for a billion Australian dollars. Yes, that's right, B for billion. I'm sure you will enjoy the discussion around how you sell such a high value property. So make sure you keep an ear out for episode 58. Okay, on to today's guests. I was really excited about speaking with these two developers because they have an interesting story to share. Olivia Christie and Sonia Miller are running a business that provides consulting services to institutional developers, and they are also in the process of delivering their own development project of a luxury apartment block. We talk about how they got into property developing, what they have learned from working with large developers, 
and how their first foray into their own project is going. We also cover topics such as their approach to community consultation, responding to a softening market, and the importance of backing yourself. And we touch on being female developers and what, if any, difference that has on their approach to developing. There's plenty of great stuff in this chat which I'm sure you will enjoy. As usual, I started off by asking them what food they would eat until they were sick. Wow. I've often had this discussion about what's your favourite food and then it kind of comes into about how much of it could you eat. So I reckon my answer in the past has always been Vietnamese pho um, because it's just that really nice, refreshing, light sort of food. I reckon it tastes so good you can just kind of keep on eating it and eating it. And I'm, just a, I'm just a burger girl. <laughs> yeah. Definitely, just, just a straight hamburger from an old school fish and chip shop. Yeah, with pineapple. <laughs> Definitely with pineapple with a lot and beetroot. Oh, yes, you're straight. The question is, how many could you get through until you actually see <laughs> Exactly. Well, I have noticed that the McDonald's hamburgers have gotten smaller. I don't eat McDonald's anymore, so definitely not McDonald's. But they're apparently reducing size over the years, they say. So yes. I could probably go quite a few of them. <laughs> actually, I have a dirty secret to admit that I went and had one of the original... Big Macs when they brought them back in the dollars. I thought this is so much bigger They're than bigger. what you yeah. get now. And so yeah. I think they got lots of blowback and pulled it off the market. Yeah, that's it. Yeah, we're being ripped off. <laughs> yeah, well, I can definitely go the beetroot and the, and the uh, pineapple and the on my burger as well. Yeah. yeah, I like it. Good. All right. Well, we're here today to talk about property development as usual. Might uh, start off with you, Sonia. How did you get into developing? Um, well, we've both had a very similar background, but uh, started off working in construction um, and, well, I actually studied architecture initially, um, but worked in construction and absolutely loved it, um, and then moved into property development, working for a number of different firms, both sort of public organisations and private developers, um, but just love the overall um, being part of every single aspect of the, the process, so right from the initial site acquisition through to settlements and divestments, and it's just um, fantastic being part of the whole process. So um, from there, we set up our own business and um, do one aspect of consulting to a number of um, uh, the larger property players, but then also doing our own um, developments, which is incredibly rewarding. Yes, well, we might come to those, but mm. Olivia, what's your background? And also, how did you end up working together? Working together. Yeah, so similar to Sonia, I um, started working with builders, so I actually studied construction management at RMIT. Um, and I just remember being on site one day. I was actually building a maximum security men's prison out in Deer Park when I was with Balderstone at the time. And I just remember standing there. It was like 6 o'clock on a Saturday morning on site. We were doing the earthworks. And I just thought, how did we end up here? So because I realised that the construction phase of the project was, you know, in essence, can be only a small part of it um, often, like how you actually acquire the site. In that instance, it was like, why... why why was it this site? Why are the buildings located where they're located? Like, how did all that happen? So um, I realised that it was really the more property development aspect of that where all of those questions got answered. And so similar to Sonia, being involved from the very beginning and for me, my passion's about sort of unlocking the value insights and, um, yeah, really getting, getting the best out of them. So that was it. And then I um, then moved to what we say is the dark side of development, so out, out of construction. And um, a few years later, met Sonia. We were working at FKP, and um, that was back in 2008, I think it was. Yeah, we only worked together for a short space of time, and um, that just remained great mates and would have many a red wine, and then um, sort of said over the years that we should do something for ourselves, and then the opportunity presented to 
to start Armitage Jones and, um, and Dynamic Property Group. Uh, yeah, so can you tell us what the difference is between the two of them and what you do? Yeah, so we set up Dun- uh, Armitage Jones first, um, and that's a consulting business, so development management, project management, um, and really drawing on um, the strengths from our backgrounds and, and our clients sort of reflect a number of the um, organisations we either work with or have dealt with in the past. So we work with a range of um, larger institutional clients like Charter Hall, GPT and AMP, but then also some smaller um, boutique residential developments and then also F&B, so quite a diverse range. Um, and that gives um, us and our team a great sort of diverse range of experience that we can then draw on and um, really assist in the development side of the business. So um, we formed Dynamic Property Group in 2016 and that was really to draw on those skills and, and it put them into um, into play into the actual development space. So um, we feel from that we've got some really great contacts and really great knowledge through the projects we've worked on and delivered for others um, in being able to do it for ourselves. I think a really key thing that we realised is the importance of staying relevant in the market. You know, we've worked for these really big property institutions, um, like Sonia said, both public and private developers. We come and work for T1 contractors. And when you work for those organisations, you get the opportunity to work on really big projects with amazing consultant teams. If you go out and just do straight property development, often, you know, you'll focus on residential. You might do only one project a year or something like that. The opportunity that Armitage Jones gives us is to stay relevant in the market um, and to actually work with new people that come in that you know move up into tier one spaces as consultants or, or builders um, and the opportunity that gives to our team to I guess translate what they learn on a hospitality project into you know, office projects or residential projects and, and vice versa. I want to ask about that but first I'm just going to check did the development side of things evolve out of the consultancy or was there always a plan to start off doing consulting and then move into development projects? Yeah, it was. So it was a, it was a conscious decision to build up a, a, a team and, and a sort of a business and cash flow um, that gave us the ability to take our time with developments and find the right site. Um, I guess we've a number of, I guess one of the flaws is kind of going into it and a development process can be quite a long process and, and having the ability to take our time in finding the right site and then once we did the, do the proper due diligence and work our way through that process and having the consulting side of the business and having the resources associated with that gave us the ability to, to undertake the development in the right way from our perspective. Very good. Well, we're going to get to your development projects mm-hmm. shortly, but I'll just come back to you, Olivia, just touching on the, the fact that you worked with on bigger projects and you get to work with awesome consultants and big teams how does that then work when you're then coming back doing a development project where you don't have those massive budgets or you're not working with you know, big name consultants, you're back working within a budget? Yep. How do you find that? Um, well, the key thing is you've actually developed relationships with a lot of the consultants and, um, and quite often you know, well, our whole industry is about relationships and people want to work with you. So um, it's more around what you see on those big projects that have these big budgets. So I'm actually off to London uh, tomorrow night on a, on a study tour for, for one of our projects with um, one of our other team members. So it's the, the opportunities that those projects give you to then come back and brief all of these amazing things that you see on these larger projects into our smaller projects where 
you actually have that skill set and that experience to say that's how we did it on that project and the reason we learned how to do it is because we actually had the opportunity to work on a project where we had a big budget where we had all these expertise and um, people who are at the top of their game working on it so you can translate in that sense and you just get no end of benefit out of that. Is it a tour of hospitality venues at all? Uh, well, there'll be some included, yes, yes. But, um, but I think, in, and, and it's not just budgets for us, but also the, the different sort of asset classes and the different sectors working in. You learn some really invaluable things, the really hands-on nature of the, the F&B um, projects that we work on and then the um, absolute intricate detail that we have to get into in the procurement on that, those sorts of projects, the complexities of some of the design in the larger projects, but then also in the residential side of things and actually bringing those and actually, the, as Liv mentioned, the relationships. Mm-hmm. Because really, and what we, I guess one of the key things that we focus on is just getting those right fit relationships for the project and I, I think you know we sort of feel as one of our real strengths is actually identifying who are the right people for that type of project and who's got the right fit, the right passion, the right attitude for that project. And what's the sort of broad breakdown of the staff that you've got here? So we've got a team of 18 of us um, and we've got a range of development managers and project managers and and I guess from from I guess our point of difference from the consulting side of things is being having people who are experienced at that full um, end-to-end delivery model. So that's where our development team um, really are able to, for our clients, able to do kind of go a much broader range of, um, of scope to cover for those. And then we've also got some people from construction background as well too. We've got a diverse range of backgrounds, but the construction so they really understand dealing with with the top tier builders and then actually managing those effectively for our clients um, to be able to, to manage those understanding the, the, the nuances of that. We, I think we, having both come from working at the large institutional developers where we used to engage project managers, we actually identified and that was part of the reason for setting up the business, a gap in the market for project managers that actually had development experience and really understood the risk profiles of the large institutional developers. And then that just translates down, that discipline translates to hospitality clients where often those projects are so much more detailed, they're extremely technical, like we're not talking, we're doing large venues, like our largest venue at the moment is a 2,000 square metre um, restaurant and bar, which is massive, so, um, and the technical aspects of that are are really, really quite quite full on, so um, actually having a team that can really go above and beyond and really get into those technical aspects and understand what the requirements are and the risk profiles of the clients has been really important and, and that's really been the growth of the business is that we've people really actually, our clients see that value. And when you talk about technical aspects of a fit-out like that, what, what's, so the kind kitchen, of, what's an idea? Yeah, the kitchens and bars. So um, we actually, it was just announced um, last week, the end of last week, that um, the Lucas Group have partnered with Martin Ben, who's the number one chef in Australia, um, to bring what was his sepia concept up in Sydney, the restaurant, Martin um, Ben and Vicky Wild, to Melbourne, and it will be a landmark restaurant of the world. People will travel from all over the world to visit, visit the restaurant, so the actual kitchen itself and how that operates both from a cooking perspective and services and mechanical items through to um, through to how operationally you get that volume of food and everything into, into the space. It's a very, very technical brief that you have to prepare in relation to that. So we've actually worked with the chefs, so you start to understand things like cooking and, and you know, and this is at a, a level that's just so different to anything else we've ever done. And so how do you approach 
a project like that that is very technical? Are you doing all the, the briefs for the consultants? or yeah. And yeah. How yeah. long does that take? What does it look it's, like? And it's a key part of our, I guess we believe, is an incredibly important part of the whole process, is actually starting right from the upfront and getting a really robust brief together. And that brief does evolve as time goes on, but that brief then can be used in particular with the client to define what they're actually looking for. Um, and, and in particular in um, venues like F&B venues, just making sure that in terms of what is the initial concept and how does that translate through to all aspects of the design. And then that then's clearly communicated through to the consultants and then through to the contractor delivering it. So it's an absolutely critical part of the whole process and that's something that we put a lot of time into up front, making sure that that brief is robust and, and um, can be carried through the whole process. So it's but for example, we've been working on since May last year um, so and that's we're still in we're just about to go into concept design now so we've been through what we call a feasibility stage like any development project where we've had to work out whether the restaurant can operate within the building it's going into and that's looking at everything from when lettuce gets delivered where does it get processed you know because there's such high volumes particularly with um, this particular client certain areas of the restaurant will be doing a huge turnover um, of of covers, so um, we actually we look at all those sorts of things. How can we actually get the kitchen exhaust to work? Um, and that's that's what we've been working on and in, in completing that deal. And now we're about to start concept design. So yeah, so it's a it's very very detailed. People don't realise. People just think, oh, mm. you can just whack a kitchen <laughs> Six in there. Six gas burners. Yeah, yeah, exactly yeah, right. um, <laughs> Extraction. It's, yeah, yeah, it's incredibly interesting. You know, people people often say to us, you know, I'd love to be a fly on the wall in those meetings, sort of hearing. And it's about you know understanding how that how the chef works, how back of house works, how front of house must work what the guest experience is, when people, we have to brief, when people walk in, what do they see here, what do they smell, like do we want them to smell, um, you know, from the kitchen, like when we do chin-chin, yes we do, do we another area in, in a high-end restaurant like that, so it's all those sorts of things that have to be thought out and briefed into everything from the architecture, interior designs through to the, the technical aspects of mechanical services and things like that. Oh, no wonder Sonia's booked into all those restaurants. Yeah, I know. Yeah, very important uh, you know, <laughs> research. <laughs> and, you, and you mentioned risk profile, working out the mm. risk profile of your client. What does that mean? Absolutely key to understand that. And, and again, what we've uh, mixed sort of experience is often, I guess, a traditional approach, which is more a construction-led approach, is really just looking at what's the quickest and the cheapest, most cost-effective way to get in to do something, and that's not necessarily for the clients the best outcome. They'd be prepared to spend a bit more money if they knew that they had a a lower risk profile. I think it's really key to understand those things and understand where a client is prepared to take a level of risk um, for a sort of a lesser price, but where they'd actually be prepared to pay a premium to make sure that that risk is taken on by the builder or, or is mitigated in some way. So I think that those sort of things are really key to understand what your what our clients are looking for. Um, and it's not necessarily always the most sort of uh, straightforward construction or quickest construction methodology. Um, and that's something I think people sometimes sort of lose, um, lose in that process. And the big institutions, are you seeing the move into different markets or segments at the moment or when, the, when economic conditions change or are they sort of set in terms of what, where they play, what space they play in? Uh, I think the, the institutional developers that we work with are pretty consistent in the commercial office space, um, but they are certainly looking at 
new and innovative ways to attract and retain tenants and a lot of that comes through you know hospitality spaces and the wellness spaces that you provide within the building so that's that's been a, a massive shift to provide that amenity to the tenants so whilst they're still all investing in office it's about making them the best office spaces and work for workplaces and that's part of this this tour that, that Sonia's going on um, and that's where for us we're very fortunate that we work with you know one of, a number of the the best hospitality operators in the country that we can actually feed their requirements in to say if you're going to attract these sorts of operators and wellness operators to your building, this is what you need to provide and how the building needs to operate. So that's where those technical aspects come into it as well. Yeah, we've moved a long way since there. We sort of the traditional approach was you're you're developing an office building and then at the end of the process you'd get a cafe operator and put a cafe, throw a cafe in the lobby just to kind of keep everyone happy. It's now much more integrated offering and it's actually a key part of the, the selling to the tenants and making sure, and I guess for us, the crossover between our experiences and making sure all those requirements are factored into the design up front is, is also a key part of it. So Because that was often the issue in the past, that when you're trying to get a cafe operator in and, and trying to get in exhausting that hadn't ever been contemplated in the design um, was always a real challenge, whereas if you're contemplating those things right from the outset, it makes a very different sort of offering that, that you can actually attract tenants. Mm. All right, well, let's talk about your development projects now. Mm. You've moved across into becoming the client or yeah. the developer. Yeah. What, what's... What are you? What projects or project have you got going, and what's the difference being on the other side of the fence? Um, yeah, so our, our um, project at the moment is a high-end residential development called Elwood Park, and it's fourteen um, high-end apartments in Elwood, overlooking Elstonwick Park. So, for us, it was about as we sort of mentioned before, getting the right. Um, site and the right opportunity for, I guess, off the back of the previous sort of wave of volume residential apartments, that's not really our sort of thing. I guess for us, undertaking development is um, about being something that we're really proud of and reflects our brand and our values and developing something that's really good quality is something really important to us. So um, that's why we took a, quite a bit of time finding the right right site and it, that gave us that opportunity to actually develop, um, partner with some great consultants and deliver a really great um, design outcome. And even even just beyond the, the ultimate sort of um, design aesthetic, but even the whole process and making sure we really manage that process really well. So in terms of all of the stakeholder engagement throughout that process that we've um, you know put a lot of focus into all of that to make sure it runs smoothly. But just Can you just step me back prior to the acquisition? Mm. You're kind of thinking about where are you looking, why are you going for that particular type of stock or that mm. type of project? So, so for us again, it, and it is it goes into the brief as well, which we started right before we um, even acquired this site of actually looking from, and I guess our experience with some other clients in the past has been that that often isn't clearly defined when you actually go out and brief an architect as to what type of who your target market is and what you're actually looking for there, and so that's where we spend a lot of time saying, well, okay, in the particular areas that we're looking at, and in particular with Elwood. What is the target market, and it's the, the the market we're going after is a downsizer, but it's also a downsizer that um, Elwood is a suburb. It's close to St Kilda, which is a bit gritty. It's got a bit of an edginess about it, so it's not necessarily just a vanilla downsizer that wants to go into somewhere in suburbia. They've got someone that's got, that's got a little point of difference. So then the design needs to reflect that as well too. So so we spend a lot of time identifying what we think and, and workshopping it with our um, with our architects and um, as well too about what that type of um, target market needs in the design. I think the, the benefit, again, of going back to having our consultancy business, um, we 
are never in any rush to acquire a site. You know, the site has to be, like, like Sonia sort of alluded to, it has to be high quality. It has to be that we... It means that we can actually deliver a quality product. Um, quite often, we, looked at, we look at many, many sites um, that we just feel uh, don't provide the best outcome for the, for the end user of the site, and whether that's residential or commercial office or whatever that might be. Um, so the actual site itself, which, you know, all developers try to find, find the best sites, but... We there's, there's certain um, parameters that we would sort of adhere to that we we would buy sites in, in certain locations that we didn't think allowed us to deliver um, the best outcome from a residential perspective. Yeah, well, it's a good block. It's actually around the corner from where I used to live in Elwood, yeah, right. so I still drive <laughs> so past it. From yeah, I live in Elwood as well too. So, so my wife's a business around there. So oh, right. yeah, it's a really good location. Yeah. Actually. What business is that? Uh, she's uh, got a chiropractic business on oh, there so. on Almond Road. Yes. Mm. Yeah. So yeah, great spot. Mm. And then, what about uh, any issues going through planning? Well, again, but we were saying in terms of the, uh, I guess, the rigour that we've put into the whole process, so we undertook a pretty extensive consultation with all the neighbours, um, and you know, we certainly had our objectives, as you often do to development, but we were prepared to sit down with all of them, and we sat down with a number of them that took us up on the offer and, and gave them all the information and took them, took them through process and um, we got our permit through council in the end rather than going to VCAT um, because council were able to actually um, sort of outline to the objectors that um, this development whilst there were some areas where um, we sort of exceeded some of the guidelines but in a lot of areas we're actually delivering a much better outcome than that and on balance what they were getting was really high quality development so from our perspective it was a, an eight month process through council which was a pretty quick turnaround um, and that was really through the um, I guess the time and effort we put into the consultation and, and catching up and we a number of our objectors when we, we reached some um, amicable compromises in terms of some additional sort of mature trees on the boundary to um, alleviate some of their concerns in terms of um, potential sight lines and things like that. So that sort of heavy kind of consultation sort of things really paid off. And we also too didn't, um, I guess we didn't sort of take the aggressive approach of really pushing the boundaries. We looked at what we thought was appropriate and we really honestly believe was appropriate for the area and, and that's what we sort of pitched it out. We didn't sort of exceed that. That's exactly right. And we... But the two comments that came back from um, from both uh, one of the neighbours or a couple of the neighbours um, that appeared that turned up to the community consultation and the councillors were just about how um, how much we had we'd taken on board the comments from people who had objected and how we'd, we'd worked to find a solution with them. The councillors said that they were the first developers that they'd ever come across that had actually gone through such an extensive process to really consider just how appropriate the development was for the area, that the design was extremely high quality, that we'd actually considered neighbours and overlooking all those sorts of things. And um, a couple of guys that did object, they said, look, we're here objecting because we want to make sure that um, our... Our requirements are being met, but we have to say that you know Olivia and Sonia have been fantastic throughout the process, and and it was really great for us to you know to be running a project ourselves um, and actually following a process that we felt was appropriate and uh, and really going above and beyond to ensure that we're considering all those things. That was great. Yeah, really positive process. So talk me through that consultation or that engagement with the neighbours. When does that start? How do you do it? When right the before coming. Yeah, like, right before we actually lodged our application, because I think that was one of the things we've learned. Through a range of different projects we've worked on is um, 
giving them the opportunity to feel like they're being consulted and that they're not hearing about it after the fact, that they're actually hearing about it whilst there's still time for them to um, to have an impact and have a, have a comment about it. You're naive to try to think that you're going to sneak it through without them, them noticing because if you, if you do, uh, it, it'll come back and uh, impact you. So I think we've always found that even if there's something that people don't like, if they know about it and you're upfront and, and honest with them about it, you're generally going to get a better outcome than when they feel that they're actually being that you're trying to keep things from them. So, so we letterbox dropped around them, went and door knocked on them, letterbox dropped those that weren't home and, and gave them our details and um, welcome sort of consultations. A number of them took us up and went over and had sort of a cup of tea and went and sat through and gave them the drawings and and were actually open with them. And sort of when they said, "Is this going to be sort of disruptive during the construction phase?" We said. Yes, it will be. Um, we're not going to pretend that it's going to be all smooth sailing because yes, it will be a period of time. But but ultimately, this is you know this is the process. This, this is your protections. This is how we'll work with you to make sure um, that we accommodate you wherever we can. So um, so yes, we certainly had um, you know we had a, a number of objectors, and I guess some will never ever I don't ever philosophically support what you're doing. Um, but they certainly couldn't say that we didn't actually we weren't honest with them, and we didn't and we gave they didn't have to get any information from council. We gave them all the information. So our approach to that is they can get it anyway from council, so we may as well give it to them, um, and at least that way they feel they've got an open dialogue with us, and, and if there are issues, they can come to us in the first instance rather than trying to sort of go through council. So. And how many neighbours were abutting the site? Uh, so there's a, there's a block of flats. Um, <laughs> Every one speck of them, light in the Elwood is a block of flats. That's right, yeah. yeah. Then there's sort of three across the rear fence and then one... Um, one sort of neighbour on the, on the south side sort of thing. So all up, there's probably about 20, um, 20 neighbours directly abutting. Immediately impacted, mm. yeah. Yeah, that's yeah. what I had on one, my last site, uh, and uh, it was a big lesson around how people view development. Yes, <laughs> yeah, and look, and look where... <laughs> on their backyard or over right. their and back I, fence. And that's right. There's a lot of people that just are fundamentally, uh, you know, um, object to development, and you will never, ever sort of bring them on side but all you need to try to say to them is and I guess one of the things and one of the things that council pointed out too was that everyone has a right to when you own property has a right to develop it there's guidelines that are set in place to make sure um, that it's developed appropriately so really rather than try to resist the inevitable try to control what you're actually going to get the outcome you're going to get there and make sure it's of the highest quality so some of the neighbours sort of said oh we like the blue sky that we currently see and it's sort of like well that's unrealistic to expect that that's going to remain so we'll work on trying to make sure what your outlook is is going to be as as nice as possible um given the fact that someone could throw up some development that was really pretty horrible or you know sort of sheer concrete walls that um is not a nice outlook so so we really tried to work with them and but but also trying to uh i guess educate and, and alert people to the fact that there is certain you have certain rights um so you know rather than sort of just fundamentally objecting to it, see if you can actually work out what your key concerns are and see if you can work that into the process. And do you think being female helped with that? Is that more of a kind of something Look, that Potentially, potentially. I think, um, I mean, one of our objectors um, kept on sort of saying to us she couldn't sort of believe that we weren't trying to sort of bulldoze her into buying her site. And we said, no, no, we're, we're just coming to you to explain what we're doing. And I think... They've obviously had a number of experiences in the past with people who haven't been honest and have started out on one thing, but their actual agenda was actually to sort of purchase her property. And um, she's probably one of our biggest advocates now. She bakes cakes for the builders on site. Um, <laughs> and But she, I think she was pleasantly surprised and she's an elderly lady. Her and her daughter um, were just sad. We're really grateful that you're actually 
you are true to your word. You're actually telling us what you, your intentions are and you're actually sticking to that. Whereas so many people in the past have kind of come to us sort of things and that, but really what they all they want to do is buy, you know, buy on a site. So, mm-hmm. so I think potentially that approach, I guess it's a collaborative approach, whether that's specifically female or not. I'm sure there's plenty of other guys that would approach things that way too, but I just think from the, there's a, probably a, just a bit of a refreshing difference from probably the bulk of people who had approached them in the past. Yeah, because I come from a comms background, so I go, well, that's how you should go about it. Mm. And I did that mm. on my uh, last project that was finished and got three or four objections, which was great. Yeah. And then I did that on my next one and... <laughs> Got like 28 objections. And look, we still got, I mean, we got a, only we only got four in the initial advertising phase, but then one of the objectors who was particularly sort of anti the development rallied up the neighbours and sort of four went to 21 overnight. Yeah. So at the time, we were kind of incredibly frustrated about that, but that meant that it pushed it to a council meeting, and I think in the end that was actually a good outcome because it gave her the opportunity to understand the process a little bit better and understand the likelihood of success. So had had it been just determined under delegation, she may have gone to VCAT thinking that she had a chance, whereas going through that proper process, she was able to have a voice with the council and actually hear their response to what they support and why they supported it. So, so but yes, I mean, we, you know, we certainly, having opened that, there still was quite a large number of people who, when they presented with a sort of form, do you object to a development? Tick yes. Yeah. Oh, yeah, of course I do. And so. you have to expect that. And, you know, mm. throughout the process, we, you know, you always ask yourself, should we have done it differently? But it was just great to, to get to the end and say, no, that's definitely the right way to do it. So, mm. yeah. And so that must have been an exciting day when you got your permit. It was. Absolutely, yes. It always is. Yes. <laughs> exciting yeah. and relieved. Yeah, you know, yeah. Sort of things. relief when that yeah. stamp arrives. That's yes. exactly right, yeah. And so then what happens next? You move into pre-selling or yeah. sales and marketing? Yes. So our sales and marketing phase. And again, so one of our things for for us and what we've seen, observed and other things is, I mean, obviously in development projects, the time frame that you can turn things around and how quickly you can um, respond and react to things to try to, to um, bring it to market as, as quickly as possible once getting the permit. So, um, so that was something that we were, I guess, without taking sort of too much risk before we had a full approval, but then making sure that we had everything lined up in terms of all our um, suppliers and consultants lined up for that um, sales and marketing phase. So, yeah, um, launch, they launched in, in March, March, late mm. March last year, so mm. that was a lot of fun. It was a great mm. March to sort of get everyone together. Everyone was so excited about the project. And again, because of the way we were approaching the project and the team that we had on board, we were saying that the, the speeches that happened from Decal, the architects, and Mim is doing the interiors, everyone was just so passionate about how they mm. spoke about the project and was a great night and then um, launched into the, the sales and marketing campaign, which is great, and got to around 50% sold now, and now, um, yeah, we're started on site. So, yeah, so drove past the other day, your basements yeah. are in, and things are yes. moving ahead. That's yeah. right, yeah. yeah. So have you got your hard hats on, you're down visiting the site? So yeah. we were trying to take a sneaky little view down there the other day, and our site manager's very uh, astute, and he sort of saw us and came straight away over, and... Um, and yeah, we were quizzing him about you know where he was at in the program, and you know when he reached the bottom of the hole, and he sort of said, "Oh, we're on program, program." I said, "No, no, what date?" And he said, "Oh, well, about middle of this month." And I'm like, "That's two weeks ahead of program." And he said, "Yeah, I know, I know." <laughs> but uh, so look, so far the process from construction side of things, um, again for us in the whole process selection of a builder was really important, um, especially given the last couple of years and and the volume of work coming in that sort of space, and I guess the um, you know. The viability of, of a number of sort of startup builders in that space is really incredibly important to us that we got a competent 
um, you know, builder that would basically that had the financial capacity to, to deliver the project. So, um, so we partnered with Man, uh, with Monaco Hickey, who are the sort of pro build, and that's through formal relationships we have with a number of the pro build people there that we've dealt with on a lot of that, the consulting side of things, but even back when I used to work at Multiplex years ago. So, so it's, again, through that whole relationship um, side of things is how we've, we basically ended up appointing the contractor. Yeah. And how did... I mean, you obviously appointed the team because you like all the people that work on them. Mm. Yeah. Did you go back to them when they put their fee proposals in and go... Listen, we're not the big institutions. Um, <laughs> we're on a budget here. This is well, about we, sort of our own certain, we sort of did to a certain extent, I guess, in, in each of our consultants when we engaged them. But we actually ultimately went. We didn't. We went for the ones that kind of showed the most passion and the most interest in the project. We didn't go for the cheapest. Um, we went for DKO because when they came in, they were so excited about the site. They'd already been down there. They had some initial sort of sketch ideas without really, you know, even kind of engaging with us. They just already came with some ideas to the table, and that just demonstrated to us a real passion and, and interest to be involved in the in the process. Similar with Mim, you know, really passionate about the the site, the area, um, what we were looking to deliver. So um, that's kind of been a key kind of criteria for us in terms of who we selected from the team, just that real passion and interest in being involved in the, in the process and just sort of sharing our vision. And that, that carries through into the design because then you, you've got a really collaborative approach as you're going through and, and problem solving throughout that design phase. And then you mentioned your target market or the audience is your... Down, down, edgy downsizers. Edgy downsizers, yeah. <laughs> Although I like to call yeah. them people who are right-sizing. Yeah, 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 true, <laughs> true. More yeah. appropriate. But mm. then how do you go about designing the the product? So mm. do you engage with the, the local agents? Or is it a bit of your own feel, looking at what else is on the market? Yeah, how does so that happen? Yeah, all those things. And again, we will, we will, I mean, a part of our process and I guess the real collaborative thing is really taking opinions from a lot of whole lot of people and drawing on all, all of the different viewpoints and making sure we've really tested our theories about what we think's right, but, you know, testing it with the, those that are at the sort of coalface in terms of agents and designers and what are all other sort of, I guess, the whole combined knowledge and making sure the product that we're delivering is um, right what we think is appropriate for it and then having said that in the, the that sort of market too there's a lot of emotional um i guess need to personalize things as well too and and you know i know it's the absolute you know kind of bane of everyone's life for purchaser changes and things like that but that's part and parcel of the market and it's also a really key part in making all of our purchasers feel that they've had the ability to personalize what they're buying it's a massive investment for them and it's making sure so we've been really hands-on with our purchasers and met them all uh, we've had a couple of sort of functions with yeah. them they're, they're a lot of fun and, that's, and the, that's been the best part about the project is mm. the fact that you've got purchasers who are so engaged that they're looking to make changes and personalize the apartments mm. we've both worked on projects before where it's an investor product and some of the purchasers don't even come to settlement inspections they don't even care it's just a product that they're going to rent out and mm. it can be a little disheartening so having these purchasers who are so engaged and are feeling so there's nothing better for us than having mm. purchasers who feel great about their purchase so mm. that's been that's been the biggest most one of the most rewarding things mm. i think you're actually using a former guest of this show as your selling agent 
Sam Gaiman. Yes, that's right. He yes. uh, yes. was an early guest on this podcast. Right, yeah. Well, again, and, and right from that selection of um, the, the team um, and and having a long local focus, and that was incredibly important. They were the, the agent that um, that assisted us with the transaction of the site in the first place and their local knowledge, and, and that was incredibly important to us. So, um, so yeah, obviously well, that were an obvious choice. Given that their catchment no, of, no, no Sam's passion for the area. So, yeah. Yes, yeah. yeah, definitely. <laughs> he was... Uh, Sam was uh, the MC at our wedding. In terms of your audience, and, and your, sorry, in terms of the selling campaign, you said you're sort of fifty percent sold. Mm. Have you then? I know the market and all this talk of the market softening in Melbourne. Have you noticed that? Are you doing yeah. anything in response? Yeah, absolutely, and it, it absolutely has softened. I mean, I guess, and really, if you look at all of the things that lined up, a number of obviously legislative changes that came in terms of stamp duty, off the plan stamp duty concession calculation changes, um, overseas investors, um, obviously some penalties. So there's a whole lot of legislative changes that changed. And then the Banking Royal Commission and all of those things overlaid has quite obviously had an impact on the on the market. And, and not necessarily that it impacts our target market directly, but indirectly in terms of when they're looking at the value of their homes that they'll be selling to move into the thing, there's a level of nervousness. And, and as actually I think Torsten said to us one time is, any buyer there that goes to a dinner party and says, "Look, I'm looking at buying or something," all their friends will say, "No, no, no, don't, don't buy now. It's the wrong time. It's not the right. It's the wrong market." So, we're very confident in the product we're delivering, and hence why we've um, decided to to go forward with construction because we believe in the quality we're delivering. And if it means that we need to get to the end of the process for people to to see that and, and deliver it, then then that's so be it. That's what we'll do. But um, but I think the market at the moment there is absolutely a nervousness, and all of these changes have really it's taken away a lot of the um, incentives and reasons for people to buy off the plan. So in that market where um, people haven't necessarily done that, this process before, um, every time you put another impediment in the process, there's less incentive for them yeah. to to sort of make a commitment now. Yeah, I mean that's my experience mm. with selling at the moment. There's mm. just people, there's a negative sentiment out there. Yep. People are apprehensive. Yeah. yeah. I mean, sort of thinking is why would you sign an off the plan contract now that's exactly right when the thing it's either going backwards or Mm. potentially not going anywhere yeah and look it's interesting because one of our sort of things too is we find one of the challenges we find in off the plan selling is actually kind of demonstrating to people the quality that they're actually getting I guess when we've been involved in a number of projects so you can actually see the difference between I guess a marketing campaign what gets delivered and, and what we're offering and we know what we're offering is real quality so in some instances getting to the end to be able to actually demonstrate so people can touch and feel the quality and see it um, is probably easier than trying to convince them now of what quality they're going to get yeah so you pull stuff off the market or you just sort of have it drifting along just in the have background? It, just have it drifting along in the background. So at the moment there's no point sort of heavily marketing um, stuff. We're not close enough. We're, we're not at the start of the process. We're not close enough to the end of the process yet. So from our perspective, um, we know there's obviously still signage up on site, but we've not got any active marketing. And really once we get a little bit closer to towards completion and, and people can start, sort of start to see it coming, coming out of the ground a bit more, that's when it's probably time to, to start kind of reconnecting back with the, all those that expressed interest in the first place, but also the wider market as to you know, the timing of the project. And that's, that's the importance of actually getting started. And if you look at the market at the moment, it's only really waking up for the year, isn't it? You know, the auctions have only just started up again in the last couple of weeks. So it's about really getting into the year and, and then and taking it from there. And when's your completion, expected completion? Uh, in April 2020. Oh, so still... 
12 yeah. months away. Yeah, yeah. 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 So, um, yeah, so we've, we've got a, I guess, a, um, the construction program, um, it's quite a, I guess it's probably a little bit longer than most, but, but it's because we want to make sure there's enough time for focus on completion and detailing of, of all the finishes because that's the key part of these um, high-end products just to make sure that's done um, well. And that was, again, in, in terms of um, selecting Monaco Hickey, um, they've done a couple of other apartment projects in Turak and the quality of their finish is exceptional and that's something that's really important to us. So making sure there's enough time um, to do that um, is, really, is a really key point of difference. And then with the people that have already purchased, is there some additional buyer management or managing their expectations just around the changing in the market? Are you having to um, maintain confidence that what they paid was a good price and they're going to get a good product? I think we've had a number of discussions with them and I think the thing that gives them the most comfort is to let them know that we're not losing our nerve and we're not slashing our prices. That's the biggest um, issue for people who've paid, Mm -hmm. um, I guess, who've paid prices in a a, um, stronger market um, is when a developer loses faith and they start slashing their prices and that then ultimately impacts their valuations and the value of their property. Whereas we've said to them we're not going to do that and they're pretty comfortable and I think most of these and most of our buyers I'd say all of our buyers um, it's not a speculative product it's not an opportunistic buy it's something that they've bought because they really love it and it's a basically and and pretty much all our buyers fit the profile that we identified they're um, looking to plan there for the future downsizing Um, and this is somewhere where they they've identified the location and the, the size of the product is what they want for the long term so so I think their focus isn't necessarily about necessarily just short term values um, it's really just making sure that we're not doing anything to um, destroy the, the value of the rest of the, their um, project yeah I think that's always important you try and maintain a floor price with your mm. stock look we've certainly worked on projects in the past where others haven't done that and, and there's such a flow effect for all other purchases when you know, you're getting valuations done and then all of a sudden the valuations aren't supporting the purchase prices and there's a whole lot of issues for people in terms of lending and the amount of equity that they've got into put in products. So so there's such a such a flow-on effect of, of those that sort of discounting and it's really important to be understanding what you're doing when you do that. Yeah. I wanted to touch back on the female side of things. It's, couple of female developers which is great to see um i was saying i hadn't had very many women on my podcast and then in the last month i've spoken to like three different female developers so you put it out there and and they start to surface so i just wanted to get your view on what it's like being a a female in the development industry as the developer because there's lots of females in the industry of course but i don't see that many that are the actual developer so I just wanted to get your views on that what it's like, how you get more women uh, into being the developer Um, I don't know if it's any different to being a male to be honest Um, I think our backgrounds um, as I said we've come from a construction background so I guess we've both come from what is traditionally a very, very male-dominated industry being the, the construction industry, particularly back when we first started out um, many moons ago now. So um, it's always just been the status quo for me that, that you know, you're just working in a male-dominated industry. I'm used to, you know, from when I started out, being the only female in a room. You know, you go to a design meeting of 20 people and you're the only female there and quite often you're you're running those meetings and... Yeah, it still happens now. It still happens now, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So yeah. Um, I think um, probably the only difference is I think we do approach things differently. You know, we've talked about how we approached our elder development and the consultation process and all those sorts of things. Um, I've not, never worked 
for a developer or with a developer that's that's gone through that sort of approach projects that way. So I think we do approach it differently. Um, again, I don't know really if that's just a personality thing or a female thing, um, but we are certainly seeing a lot more females in the industry and, and our, our consultancy business, um, Armitage Jones, we've got a senior leadership team and two or three uh, are female. Um, both of them are mothers and mm. both of them have, yeah, have young children and all those sorts of things. So um, as a business, we, we are certainly attracting, uh, you know, 50% of our, over 50% of our mm. team are, are female. So again, it's very different to a lot of um, project and development management consultancies, a lot of developers. Um, and it's amazing how, yeah, when you, and quite often the reason they say they want to join us is because there are two females running the organisation and um, I don't know if there's any other female founded and um, and, uh, and led um, consultancy businesses or, or developers. We haven't actually checked that. Mm-hmm. But, um, yeah, so we're, we're certainly seeing, we have a lot of females in our business, um, but when we talk to, we do a lot of, a lot of, um, lot of talks to uh, you know, female property developer or construction groups and, and and they talk about the fact that they're still not, you know, the percentages are, are still very much like what they were for us many years ago. So, And it's interesting, especially in residential development, because you, you look at the buyer profile and a lot of the time the female makes a decision. So it's interesting that that's... Um, that it is still just made, um, dominated by the male developer in that whole sort of process. So, and, and maybe, you know, I think in this process, I think it's really helped us because the participation levels with the purchase has been um, so so interactive and I think especially this high-end product. And, and it is, I think, of each of the, um, most of the buyers that we've had and the, the most of the interaction and the decision-making has been with the with the female. And so when we're able to have sort of sit at the table and discuss purchaser changes and discuss different ways we think of, of how, we could, you could make some changes and stuff, and I think they've really resonated with that, and just kind of getting getting our views on things, and and you know, I think that that's sort of worked really well for us. But it's just interesting that there's not not more not women more. out yeah. there. And so, do you feature in the marketing, or is the in terms of promoting the fact that it's two female developers doing the project? You're talking about your vision. Look, I think from our perspective, we want the project to stand on its uh, its own in terms of the quality of what we're delivering. Um, I guess we'll leave it for, for I guess, all our, our target market to determine having two females. We don't want to just hang on that that's sort of a, you know, I guess our point of difference the thing. I guess it really, we think it flows through into what we deliver and that therefore that's what we should be marketing is the product and the quality of that and, and the quality of the whole process. Um, I guess if you go to both the Dynamic Property Group and the Armitage Jones websites, we're there as the, hmm. the two owners and, and directors of each organisation. So when people, which buyers often do, they'll look at who's behind the project and who's managing it. So yeah. they see hmm. that. Um, and certainly, as you, you're saying, Sonia, when it came when it comes to actually meeting, we, we meet with all purchases. Um, they obviously discover that then, and yeah, we do get comments about it. You know mm. that we are two females from the, the purchases, and mm. how happy they are to see that. So um, maybe it does play a little mm. bit into it, but certainly it's not something we promote in the upfront marketing. Mm. Yeah, I, just, I think it's a point of difference. Yeah, I think yeah. it's going to influence everything it is it's a, it's a really interesting thing and we've had this conversation many times how prominent you make that message you don't want it to just be about being female um, because that really takes away from everything else that we deliver into the process yeah absolutely um, but yeah it is but it is our point of difference so um, you know obviously you will always want to play to your strengths and, and what your point of difference is um, but again we don't want it to ever just be 
purely just about the fact that we're female. Mm. We want it to be about the fact that we do really great developments. Yeah, and you're, so, you're just going to bring a different perspective yeah, yeah. to it with a bit, and mm. in lots of li- different little ways. That's right, yeah. So, yeah. And it is a bit unique. Yes. So, yeah. And then what's your view on getting more females involved at the sort of top of the tree? Um, we've still got a long way to go. It's mm. um, a long way to go. I mean, look, we um, there's definitely a lot, a lot of positive um, encouragement, and, and I think it's moved from. I mean, I think we entered the industry at the time when it was all about just getting females into the industry, but never really dealing with that issue of them having sitting in senior management roles. And I think now the, there's a way a lot more awareness about that needs to change before there'll be real real change. But, you know, um, there's a lot of other businesses, a lot of, you know, construction companies, a lot of things that that's still still not happening mm-hmm. at yet. So I still think there's there's still a way to go, but there's definitely much better awareness of it than there was um, was in the past. Yeah. yeah. I think if I look back to when I did construction management, I think there was 60 people in the course, and I think there was uh, 10 females, and five of those females were overseas students. Um, and I think there's only one of the... The local um, local girls who's still working in construction, like obviously moved, mm. still working in construction to a certain degree, but have, have, I'm not working for a builder. And there's only only one other that's um, that's still doing that. And I think the others have dropped out of the industry completely. So um, and I think that's still the case. You know, a lot of the, the younger girls that we talk to talk to that fact that you know they they can't look up and see that you know in senior management within construction organisations in particular but also also consulting yeah mm. consulting development organisations that there's females that they can say yep they're in a, a leadership role or a, a, a senior management role it's kind of funny it's sort of the flip side of my own personal experience going through and doing a business comms degree yeah, <laughs> yeah. Well, it's all mainly yeah. females that's right it's interesting the different sectors yeah <laughs> different sectors I know my, my husband's always done more of an HR sort of thing and it's always he's been always surrounded by females whereas yeah. I've always been surrounded by males in uh, you know my role and, and as Liv mentioned before you just you kind of just get used to it <laughs> and so what do you think the, the skills or the qualities that you that allowed you to make that jump into taking on your own business and doing your own consulting, doing your own developments? Uh, for us, it's very much around about our, our personal brands and reputations that we've built up through the different um, uh, organisations we've worked for, and I think that's something that we've been always continually um, sort of reminded of and um, pleasantly surprised, I guess, as we go through just the, the reputation and the brand that we've built up and, I guess, the sort of strong ethics and um, things that, that sort of surround us and we've been able to now then bring that into creating a business brand that stands on those um, those same qualities. Mm. And we've both got a real passion for the industry. You know, mm. We love what we do. We love mm. development. And so a big thing for us in, in starting both businesses was about having the opportunity and the freedom to work on the projects and with the people you want to work with. You know, you meet all these people over the years and we're really lucky that we are able to now choose who we want to work with to a certain degree um, and the projects we want to work on and that just gives us you know you just it's what you want to do there's nothing kind of more disheartening than having to start on a project that you're just not passionate about and whether that's you know I've done to be perfectly honest residential projects over the years that are an investor product and a cookie cutter approach and they're just aimed at really making money and they're not of a quality that you don't finish the project and so I'm really proud of that and so that was something that we mm. sort of promised to each other is that we work on projects and deliver projects that we're proud of so when that's happening you just have such passion I think that really comes through with all of our clients they all talk to that you know we go above and beyond and 
we'll we'll deliver for them and we'll deliver at a high quality and um, and that but that it all came from that that passion and wanting to work on really high quality projects that we, that we are passionate about. And so, what's have you got other projects in the pipeline apart from the Elwood? One or you um, again at the say. moment well at the moment we're just sort of set, you know similar to our approach to that Elwood one was really just looking waiting for the right um, approach there's I mean there's a lot of stuff coming on the market now but it's some of the stuff that's coming on that's not great great quality it's projects that haven't worked for other other developers have either got a permit that's not really quite right for it so so we are always looking but again we're, we're very um, conscious of making the right call and making the right working out what is the right um, what the right site for the right location, um, or the right product for the right site. So we're 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 sort of cautiously treading our way through to working out the next uh, next acquisition. Very good. Well, tell me your what's been the most difficult or challenging business decision you've had to make. Oh, I think in Armitage Jones' early days um, for us. Um, really making sure that you stay true to what our values are and when something has uh, occurred and um, something happens in the business where that you don't believe is right and to make a decision um, to move away from a client or something like that is potentially going to be financially you know challenging for us and that happened an instance happened early on in our business and but we had to make a call as to what do we actually really stand for and if we actually don't stay true to what we've said we believe then we're just as bad as all those others that have all these things that they say that they represent but when it comes to a tough decision they don't make Mm -hmm. so that was pretty challenging early early on for us but we did we stood true to our guns and we we actually made the tough call because we kind of know if you don't do that if you don't start off doing that then you're never going to get it back so that was definitely the most challenging Mm -hmm. and then but the outside of that, just seeing the opportunities that open up for yeah, us, you know, yeah. when your focus moves away from something that might be negative and doesn't represent your values to then focusing on things that do, positive opportunities and opportunities and clients that align with your values, it just opened up knowing mm. the doors. So yeah. it was a really big learning curve for us to, you know, take that, take a deep breath and, and away we went and, you know, we... We, uh, we have each other, which is a great thing, you know, to bounce ideas off and know that we, you know, stand shoulder to shoulder and we're completely aligned on all of those things. So Yeah, and if ever we find we come across something that doesn't feel right in the business and we talk to it, we always say, well, each other, you've got a full support to yeah. make what we think is the right decision mm-hmm. um, because if something just doesn't feel right or some sort of, I guess, behaviour from a client or things like that is not right, then you've, you've got to act on it and we, you know, both fully support each other in, in making those decisions mm-hmm. because otherwise we, yeah, we're just not true to what we actually say we stand for yeah well it's like one of the reasons i started this podcast was because developing can be a lonely game yeah. when you're there i mean a lot of the time it's you know one person and making mm, yeah. decisions and sometimes it'll be really hard you're mm. facing all these challenges and issues and yeah. no one really fully understands yes. except, except you yeah yeah, yeah. And, um, and we have our walking meetings on a wednesday morning we walk along the um the esplanade along st kilda and down to brighton and it's awesome for thrashing out things and and having each other to uh, bounce off when there is challenging decisions and working out brainstorming around what's the right way to move forward on those things and we, and we walk five, just... 5k it's just over an hour it's never long enough yeah yeah <laughs> there's always a, yeah so much to talk about in mm. that regard well you talked about brand and values mm. so is that something that you articulate 
you get that down on paper and these are our corporate values or these are our values, yeah. this is what our brand stands for and then you can yeah. refer to that when, with decision making. Absolutely and it's also important too that making sure that that messaging is clear for our team as well too because our brand is not just the two of us, it's our whole team and making sure that every person who deals with, in, in particular on the consulting side of things, um, deals with Armitage Jones um, uh, you know, the, the, um, our team reflect exactly the same brand values. Um, and then that flows through to our to developments as well too, that everything we do um, stands true to those values. And if we, and any decision-making, it just makes it easier for decision-making criteria because you just check up against those. And if it's not actually in line with what we're saying, that's when we kind of go to ourselves, okay, hang on, this this isn't right, then it's not the right decision. And the name, Armitage Jones... Something, some, yeah. something. <laughs> no, look, I think uh, it's your mystery name. No, so the mystery, the mystery is really, uh, um, you know, it's my husband's mum's maiden name and my mum's maiden name. But for us, we like the fact the anonymity of it and the fact that it's not either of our names. It's got sort of a, it almost sort of sounds a little bit sort of formal, and yet the the logo and the brand is much more fluid. And, and we're green, we're not blue. Probably developer blue. Um, so we kind of like that. Uh, I guess juxtaposition of those two sort of things, and the fact that it is a name that people go. Mm idea where that comes from. But, uh, yeah. that, sounds, that sounds like a law firm. It does, yeah, 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 I know. Yeah. Bring my yeah. sales contracts here. Yeah. Yeah. And the name of the developing business? Um, that we probably spent a bit more time into, um, I guess, making sure it was something that we thought reflected what we really wanted to bring to the table in terms of developments yeah. and and reflected our approach, reflected the, the, the sort of the outcome and, and the fact that we like to do things that, that are dynamic that, um, which is, I guess, the dynamic representing the ability to change and and adjust to to changing circumstances, Um, sort of dynamic, really kind of well-thought-out design. um, and The importance of being agile these days and fluid and responsive Mm. to to the changing market requirements and purchase requirements and the way Mm. the whole industry is changing and being agile, we just felt really represents... Our, our capabilities and, and the way we work, we can we're very adaptive and responsive to change, and um, I think that's really important in in looking at sites and, and in development and, and how we manage our team and how our team operates. It's one of the things that comes back to you on the consultants inside of our business is our clients say, you know, you are so responsive and you're able to adapt um, to to any situation. You know, you can be heading down one path, but it understands that things change. So that's really really where it came from. Yeah, the and company group. never being too proud to sort of go back and re re look at a decision and say. Okay, maybe maybe that wasn't quite right. We'll go back on another thing, and not to sort of ever being too set in our ways to to not be prepared to change. Mm. You talk about agility in the industry, and you know, it's always changing. What are you seeing at the moment, or what are the big changes you've noticed in recent times, or what, do you see any anything coming that I think, look out um, for? So the, the wellness aspect, um, mm. we obviously see that as we touched on earlier in the, the commercial office development side of things, but we know that then our, um, the next reiteration of the wellness rating system incorporates hospitality and residential, and that's something we're really excited about. So incorporating um, how people, that the people focus on the wellness aspect of it. We always talk about the fact that, um, you know, neighbours ratings and green star ratings are very technical building focused um, ratings. The wellness rating is all about people, and that's what we're really passionate about, mm. how people work in the buildings we, we develop, how they live in the buildings we develop. So um, that, that's just becoming more and more important. Mm. So particularly the commercial aspect, so the commercial office aspect of projects, 
that tenants are just looking at how and like how is this building going to attract people to my business mm-hmm. and how's it going to help me retain them by providing providing a great workplace mm-hmm. and then when we start to see that happening in the residential space that'll be great and it will really improve on the quality of the developments that we're doing. Yeah, it's a real shift away from focusing on the building and the and the components of the building to really the sort of experiential sides of things and how people experience spaces, how they need to use it, how they feel in them, um, the that vibe. side of things. Yeah, it really is. And <laughs> I mean, I know we we um, we went to a development conference last year and we were just sort of sort of chatting about the, you know, the things we think makes a great project. And what we were saying is that a great project is the the feeling you have about a project you've been involved with, the people you dealt with in that whole delivery thing, and then seeing people use it at the end of the day. Mm-hmm. It's not about looking at an image that's been taken by, I guess, an architectural photographer that has no people in it, um, and you really can't actually kind of relate to it. Um, it's really, for us, it's much more about that whole pot process right through and the experience and how you felt in that thing mm-hmm. up to then when you sort of, if especially in particular hospitality, if you're sitting there having a meal or any other sort of space, when you're using that space, how you feel yeah. and, and your memories of that whole process is, is what makes a great project. I think that's why we loved the launch of Elwood Park so much, you know, I again touched on earlier, just how passionate everyone was about the project at our launch party and mm-hmm. we say we're not quite sure if it's because it's our project but we've not been to a launch like that where people spoke with such passion about how much fun they'd had to get the project to that point and mm-hmm. the designers are so proud of what they've done because we really, it was a true collaboration, you know, we We'd let them challenge us and we challenge them in return as happens through the design phases and everyone trying to make it work commercially but provide a really great outcome. So, um, And that's you know just been the first stage. But now we're in the construction phase and we've got an amazing building partner in Monaco Hickey who everyone from you know the, the senior management through to our guys on site are just really passionate about the project as well and that was huge in the selection of the builder. So it's about maintaining that the whole way through and then you can't wait till the purchasers see the end product. Mm-hmm. Yeah, you definitely can get a vibe or a feel for some mayo when you walk in and you build. Mm. Yeah, pick up on something. Yes. Yeah, and that's what—that's the key part of it. I mean, it's, it's how you how you feel, and like you know, you go back to places that you've been involved with, and when you kind of like it, just remembers brings back sort of really sort of you know fond memories or things like that. It just makes you feel great, and that's that's to me that's what I get a real buzz out of in the industry. Go kind of going back to things and oh god. Yeah, I remember that. Or you know, we go down to Hawker Hall down here, and we remember standing there in the freezing cold during winter when it was being developed. But you know, it just it gives you a real, a real buzz. Yeah, I, I always found there's a a bittersweet feeling when your project wraps up. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. That's right. You don't go down there anymore. Yeah, it's true. <laughs> it's absolutely. Sort of gone. I know. Yeah. I know. You kind of drive past it every now and then <laughs> just to sort of see how it's going. <laughs> and tell me, what's the best piece of advice you've ever received? Uh, for me, it's um, making decisions on what you know now, not not worrying or stressing over what could happen, you know, and what decisions might get made in the future, knowing that you make a decision based on the information you have right now and that you can actually change that decision further down the track. As we say, development things are constantly changing. We're always trying to maintain, um, maintain opportunity to, to change things, um, but yeah, just knowing that you're going to make a decision based on what you know now and stick to your guns and just move forward on that basis. 
Mine's not dissimilar to that, but also to, you know, sometimes you, you'll always look for the reason why something's not right and why things are being... And that, that stifles decision-making. So don't don't let those sort of negative things... You've just got to be very measured and, and look at things on balance and make an informed decision. If you try to look at all the negatives and you procrastinate over things, then that's just as bad as not making... You know, not making decisions, making a bad decision. So as you say, just make a, make a decision. Look, consider all information and make a, a clear decision. And if you go back in time and talk to a younger self, what, when would it be? What would you say? I guess it's always it's that when you look back on things of um, learning as you go through your career and having that confidence um, about your ability and confidence to speak up for yourself and and um, and but that's something that you learn and you go through. I think of my going through the different career phases and those different things I learned out of each and levels of confidence I picked up. But really, just to sort of back your back yourself and 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 you know, often people will sort of put you down and you'll come to that when you haven't got the confidence to stand up yourself. But really, I guess really sort of back yourself and and mm. believe in yourself. Mine's the same, definitely. Yeah, just back yourself and know your ability and know that you're, you're willing to learn that you're a hard worker. So you know, and probably that's the other thing, be prepared for a whole lot of hard work. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And what would you say is your best tip out there for developers who would be looking to take their business to the next level? Oh, I think certainly in the current market of things, never, never underestimate the... Um, the ability for or the stakeholder engagement at all at all different levels, um, and just being and the considering all options for things and, and always being flexible to change, making sure that your every decision or when you're going through things, you're always considering what is the, the fallback option or what is the other yeah. thing. Just being trying to sort of second guess what other things could pop up. And just the importance of maintaining relationships, you know, being collaborative, mm-hmm. or you know, from. Yeah, adjoining neighbours through to your consultant team and your builders, your financiers, just how important it is to be to to work with integrity and be trustworthy yeah. so that, you know, these people that's that's the, the basis of our business is integrity and being and people can trust mm-hmm. us. They know that we're true to our word and that they know what we'll deliver. So um, and that comes through time and time again in everything that we do. And I think also too being reasonable and not ever trying to uh, try to sort of win at someone else's detriment sort of thing. I think most decision-making, there's a compromise position, and if you if both sides are happy to compromise, everyone generally comes away feeling feeling good about it. When one other party tries to take advantage at someone else's, um, you know, at someone else's expense, that's when the whole thing, the whole trust and the whole um, relationship side of things falls apart, and I think it can often be the case in, in developments as, you know, everyone's, sort of, someone's, someone's just trying to get more out of it than, than what everyone else, you know, gets. All right. Well, I'll just quickly switch gears as we approach the end of our discussion. Mm-hmm. Keen to hear who you would choose to have dinner with, three people alive or dead, who would they be and why? I don't think I'm going to say what I said before. but um, yeah. <laughs> My first one would be Beyonce. <laughs> I think she's amazing. She's, she is. She's unbelievable. So definitely Beyonce. I have to think about the other two. So I was thinking that after hearing the news flash this morning and I'm just counting, you know, Cardinal Pell and, and George Bush, <laughs> I mean, not George Bush, uh, bloody Donald Trump. I was thinking probably um, Richard Branson, someone who I've always thought's just got such a such a passion and, and positivity in the way he presents the things and I think something like that, those sort of people are just infectious so it would be fantastic to be around, someone like that. Um we went and saw um, Hillary Clinton do when she was in Melbourne do a talk, and she was incredibly um, inspirational and someone who's been a, um, 
you know, female trailblazer, I think would be a fascinating thing. And then on a more local level, I was thinking Julie Bishop because, again, in that politics thing and and, uh, interesting talk I went to recently sort of saying, you know, she's, you know, obviously one of the longest serving deputy leaders and interesting when it came to this, obviously the leadership spill recently wasn't even looking for um, for the actual top job, whereas any other male candidate generally would have always been the front runner. So interesting to just understand in that political environment and, and, and that side of things there, what uh, what her experience has been like. All female other than Richard Branson. Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. I, just, <laughs> I just finished Michelle Obama's book coming. Yeah. Uh, mm, really interesting read. Mm. Yeah, I was going to say Michelle Obama as well. Mm. Yeah. Uh, lots, of, uh, lots of power there. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> that would be an interesting dinner conversation, <laughs> no doubt. Well... Listen, where can people find out more about you if they are interested? Uh, so, well, look, we've, we've obviously got our, both our you know, websites at um, Armitage Jones Dynamic Property Group, but also Instagram. Um, you know, we, we like to post a fair bit about what our team's up to and our various projects, but also just the things that we, we do as a, as a team, our personal training sessions and, and all, all the things that are, we think are really important in the overall process and delivering a great, a great business and a great sort of development outcome. Very good. Well, I'm really grateful to both of you for sharing so much insight with us today and your time. It's been awesome talking with you. Thank you. Sonia Thank you and you. Olivia, thanks for being on the Property Developer Podcast. Thank you. Thanks a lot. Okay, there you go. A couple of developers focused on delivering great projects. I really enjoyed speaking with Sonia and Olivia and took away these points. One, be proactive with community consultation. I understand that dealing with neighbours and objectors can be challenging, but being proactive about engaging with them may help to smooth the application process just a little bit, or maybe even a lot. Most people don't like change, and to discover that some new building is going up next door in the street can unsettle some residents. Seeking out their views and being prepared to change demonstrates to council that you are being considerate of your neighbours. My view is that neighbours are going to find out anyway about your development, so better to get on the front foot and let them know yourself. This is certainly something I've found on my projects to be helpful and can avoid complications and delays from trips to planning tribunals. Two, be mindful of how you respond to a softening market. I thought it was interesting to understand that by simply dropping your price midway through a project due to softening conditions, it can have some serious flow-on effects for your existing buyers. It influences how they feel about their purchase and also their own valuations at settlement. So it can be helpful to stay in touch with your purchasers, reassure them about their property value and importantly have faith that your product will stand up to market scrutiny. 3. Back yourself. I know this is a common piece of advice and that people say have confidence in your abilities. But confidence comes down to practice and implementation. So try being proactive in your decision-making and dealing with issues. It is usually better to focus on the future, not the past, and have faith in your vision about why you are a property developer. Alright, if you enjoyed that discussion with Olivia and Sonia, then why not go back and take a listen to episode 55, where I speak with Jennifer Macquarie about what she has learned from being a second-generation property developer running her family's developing business. This particular cyclical period we're going through now, now is nowhere near as bad as it was then, but I am reaping the rewards of those, those lessons that I learned in the way I've structured the business in that we're much more robust now going through this particular squeeze point in the cycle than we would have been had I not learned those lessons previously. There is plenty of gold in that interview, so be sure to take a listen to episode 55. 
Remember to drop me an email if you're interested in the financial masterclass and also if you are keen to learn how to develop property safely and profitably. My email is justin at propertydeveloperpodcast.com. Catch me on Facebook and Insta for my latest news and updates. And if you're looking to be a friendly fan, drop a comment on iTunes. And finally, until next time, may you stay true to your vision and heart. You've been listening to the Property Developer Podcast. Tune in next time for more tips, ideas and inspiration to take your developing to the next level. For more developing love, make sure to visit propertydeveloperpodcast.com.